Well, for the past several weeks, I've referred to the rise and fall, or maybe more accurately, the fading away of great nations. And I've noted a frightening similarity with our own country, the United States, as we look at the trajectory that these great nations tended to follow in their rise, first from humble beginnings, to a place of honor among the nations, and eventually to kind of a, to a hubris, a, a, a gender, generating of arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency and self-confidence, until finally God allowed them to drift into humiliation. Historians look at these nations from the horizontal perspective of time and space. They look at the culture, the politics, the economies, the armies, and all the rest. But God views these nations through the vertical lens of heaven and eternity. His concerns aren't with historical events, but rather, as he said through to Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 6, the things that man looks at, that is the outward appearances of things, is not how God looks at them. He looks at the heart. Not only the heart of the individual, but the heart of the matter, if you will. Because as Daniel warned the last king of Babylon, Belteshazzar, in Daniel 5, he said, O king, the most high God gave your grandfather, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed. They took his glory from him. Tell until he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. With this writing, they were written upon the wall, Mene, which means God has numbered your kingdom and it is finished. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Of course, the rest is all just history. We don't need to necessarily go any further. That We know that that very evening, the Medes and the Persians overwhelmed the city of Babylon, and the Babylonian Empire ended rather quickly. The downfall of great nations is never initially or solely and because of outward forces, but as Sir John Glubb said in his classic work, The Fate of Empires, he said the fall of great nations are due to internal reasons alone. National life has been corrupted by the enjoyment of too much money and too much power for too long a period, making them selfish and idle. Internal quarrels develop into the division and dwindling of their wealth, producing a pessimism and the endeavor to drown themselves in sensuality and a frivolity, 
It's interesting. The word frivolity means a, a lack of seriousness. The avoidance, really, of the realities of life around him. The thing that Noval Harari said that was the way to change the, the world is to keep them occupied with video games and drugs. Finally, Glub said, decadence is a moral and spiritual disease. It's the same thing the prophets warned. When the prophet Ezekiel talked of the judgment that was coming upon Judah, he said that they were like their sister Sodom. He said, this was a sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They weren't bothered by the things that bothered God. They considered the things that were going on to be not their problem because they hadn't touched them yet. But I think the prophet or the psalmist put it most distinctly when David wrote of men in, in, who are entangled in wickedness, he said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's amazing when you think about it because when I was just a young Christian, I was told the problem with the church is they are afraid of God. And today I look at the church and say, the problem with the church is we're not afraid of God. <laughs> we do things without any thought of consequences. Even though God says if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you do those things that disobey and dishonor God, if you go contrary to his will, you'll find out that his will will be done, no matter how much you want your will to be done, that in the end, God always and forever and completely prevails. But note the parallels that we see in the reading about Israel and the judgment that the Deuteronomy of Moses said in Deuteronomy was going to come. And he breaks this down into four separate steps that first of all, they begin with humble beginnings. He said, in a desert land he found him in a barren and hollow howling place or waste. That so often we find that great nations always start off with really nothing special or unique about them. They're often more primitive than other nations, less developed, less organized. And yet there's a certain discipline that comes from hardships and striving. They have a certain hardiness that comes with the challenge of just trying to endure in a very difficult place. God said, when I found Israel, they were deserted people. They were a people who were barren, and they were a people who lived in a place of waste. And then he goes on to say he honored them. He made them ride on the heights. And one of the things that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, if you read it from cover to cover, is he's repeatedly bringing them back to this simple point. Don't forget who you were before I took you out of Egypt. You were slaves in the land of Egypt. You had no future. You had no hope. You had no identity. You had nothing distinct about you. You belonged to others. And I came and I rescued you and made you what you are. And I brought you into a land that flows with milk and honey. He says, never forget. Nine times he says, do not forget. Nine times he says, remember, remember, remember. Because one of the things I've discovered about my life, it's not the things that I don't know that get me into trouble. I find that when something comes up and I don't know how to deal with it, God is gracious and merciful and fills in all the blanks. 
So I go into that moment going, I don't know what I'm doing or how this is going to turn out. And I come out on the other side and go, wow, that worked out fine. And sometimes I start congratulating myself on what a good job I did until God reminds me that he can unwind it very quickly. But the things that get me in trouble are just that. It's the things that I've known and I do know, but I forget. It's the things that I long ago learned that God said, thou shalt not, and I sit there and go, well, maybe just once. And we begin to give ourselves permission because we have come from the hardship into this place of the blessing, and somewhere in there, the human brain has an ability to start saying, well, yeah, it was God, but he had to use someone. And why did he choose you? You're so special. You see, arrogance is native to us as humans. It's something that just comes naturally. Nobody had to teach you to be proud or to be arrogant. The first time your mother looked at you when you did some silly thing that really didn't matter, and she said, oh, you did such a great job. You know, those pictures you bring home. From, gray, from kindergarten or preschool, and you bring it home, and mom goes, oh, that is just amazing. We've got an artist in the beginning here. Oh, this is incredible. Step aside, Rembrandt. No problem, he's dead. But we're going to hang this in the most prominent place in life. We're going to put it in the refrigerator, <laughs> which kind of explains my food addiction to this day. But Somehow I related feeling good to food from that point forward, right? But we forget that he is the one who blesses. He is the one who lifts up. He is the one who prospers, who is so bountiful and gracious and kind. And that's where the hubris comes in. It says, he abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior, and when we do that, what follows is humiliation. It said, the Lord saw this and rejected him. When we look through history, we see the same cycle over and over again. The Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Arabs, the Egyptians, the Turks, the Spanish, the Russians, even Britain. On average, the nation lasts about 250 years. It doesn't mean they stop existing before or after that they just have this season of greatness, 25 generations, or excuse me, 10, 10 generations of 25 years is the average life expectancy of every great nation, which fortunately, July 4th will only be our 243rd anniversary of being a great nation. But for some reason, it always comes to that point. And I don't think it's because, as we say, that history repeats itself. But there's just something about human nature that always ends up in the same place. Like the dog returned to his vomit, the prophet said. Or the pig who goes back to wallowing in the mire. We somehow have this attraction to go back. We almost like we can't help ourselves. We just have to step in it. So how does Israel's fate relate to us today? Well, Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us as warnings. 
That in other words, we're supposed to look at how they succeeded and failed so that we can learn from that. We can gather from that insight and understanding and by that looking at them vicariously applying it to myself. You know, it's kind of like, I look at David's life and I see his successes and I see his failures. I see his sin and I see the consequences of his sin. And I can look at that very clearly and I say, you know, I don't have to do those things that he did. I have a choice. Because one of the things I realized, no matter how attractive Bathsheba was, it didn't pay off in the end. Not only did it say the sword will never depart from your house. I remember reading that for the first time and thought, you know, there's no way you can do stuff like that and turn out good. It's just not. It's, it's always going to be the case. It's like whoever that is who plants dandelions in my yard every year. I, I, I want to find that guy. He's, he's efficient, and they're the healthiest part of the lawn, but I don't like dandelion tea. And one of the realities of life is that if we're going to overcome evil things, then we have to determine that evil things must be overcome. From both a secular historical perspective and a biblical spiritual perspective, I fear that, and I, I don't even fear it, I know it that we as a nation are following this same cycle. Yet it's not fated. I mean, when Mark Twain responded to the adage that history repeats itself, he said, I don't think history repeats itself, but it does rhyme. You know, it seems like the same tune keeps on going over and over again. He was essentially saying it doesn't have to be that way, but we make choices especially when we are unassisted by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. You see, today most historians reject the notion that America was ever a Christian nation. Scholars like guys like Richard Hughes in his book, Myths America Lives By. He asserts, he says, most of the American founders embraced some form of deism not historically orthodox Christianity. I looked at it and thought, how accurate is that assessment actually? Well, you see, the problem is that deists is a religious movement that we don't hear much about, but it's still present. But deists believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he went someplace else. They recognize there was a created universe that came from some power, but He's a disinterested power. He moved on. I, I don't know what he's doing. If he, but he doesn't do miracles. He doesn't divinely intervene in the affairs of men. There's no use wasting your time in prayer or Bible reading or any of those other religious things because you can call all you want. There's nobody on the other line. So we just live our life the best we can. End of story. Yet, when I read the writings of people like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Franklin, who usually are the prime candidates for the deist opinion, I find that they themselves make numerous references to prayer and miracles, divine intervention, their personal Christian faith even. In fact, let me read you a few of them. 
George Washington said, the distinguished character of a patriot is important. It should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. In other words, he said, the most important thing that we can aspire to is to be a Christian. Thomas Jefferson, who is clearly branded as being nothing but a deist, I would say was a pretty crummy one. He said, God gave us life and liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed the only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift of God? That they are not to be violated, but with his wrath? Indeed, he says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. And then he writes, I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Thomas Jefferson, remember, he's not a Christian. Or what about Benjamin Franklin, which would be another one. He wrote towards the end of his life. I guess we all go through changes as we get older, except for myself. He says, here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshiped, and that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be fun, the fundamental points. When you begin to realize that 98% of the founding fathers professed themselves to be Protestant Christians, that undoubtedly because of that they viewed the world through the lens of Scripture. All of the original 13 colonies had charters or constitutions, which interestingly required that anybody who was to serve in government service had to be a Christian. 29 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were seminary graduates from Christian universities. Colonial schools, which were run by churches exclusively, used the Bible as their primary text. And you can see that evidence even in Benjamin Franklin's primer that he wrote for students to learn how to read, that every single reference from A to Z is passages from the Bible. That basically, Scripture and its thought permeated the cultural landscape. Does that mean that everybody was a Christian? No, it does not. But it really means that there was a common acceptance of the world and how we should relate to it. There was a com common cultural value system. Which is why John Adams, who was one of the co-authors of the Declaration of Independence and also of the Constitution, and was our second president, simply said, our Constitution was made only for a moral 
and religious people, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You see, the founding father recognized that man's nature is sinful based on their, their uh, biblical views. Why do you think they created three different departments of government and each of them was equal in its power and authority so that not one could precede or overwhelm the other because they understood the nature of men's sins. They created a series of checks and balances in order to keep the government from becoming an oppressor. They wanted to put limits on it so it wouldn't take over because they knew that absolute power corrupts, as Lord Acton said, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This commitment to Christ wasn't something that was new. <laughs> In fact, the scriptures isn't the place that necessarily they began, but what, rather it came down to them from generations of their forefathers. Thomas Holland, who happens to be uh, himself, is a professing agnostic. He doesn't necessarily know if there's a God or not. has written uh, extensively on ancient history, and his most recent and probably most uh, successful work he's ever done is called Dominion. And he makes this interesting note about Western civilization. He says, the longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. In other words, he's talking about the world, world of the Greeks and the Romans. Especially its callous disregard for human life. It was not only the body count, it was also a lack of sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value we don't get that from the Greeks and the Romans. We get that from the gospel. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I'm not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Now, it's a funny thing to make, say for a man, for a man to say that I don't really believe that Christ died for my sins. I don't believe Christ was raised from the dead. But I realized that his impact upon the world was so significant that the values that he communicated by his life and his death and his resurrection are the ones that I choose to live by because they are so much better than anything that has ever come before and anything that has come after. This is why the very first amendment, the first thing that the founders said that they wanted to make clear, it's really the opening statement, the foundational principle upon which this new republic they were seeking to build was going to rest. <laughs> and you know the words, you know the thing, the thing that says, you know, you know, all men created, you know the thing, you know the thing. But they... It begins this way, for those of you who didn't take civics. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble 
and to petition the government for redress of grievances. You see, there was concern with the establishment of religions. There were certain states that had a state religion. You had to be part of that religious group to be accepted as a citizen of that state. And they removed that whole idea that there could be an established national religion that everybody had to conform to. But instead, what they said, there should be the freedom to worship God as your conscience guides and directs you. And so as a result, for the first time in human history, the freedom to worship God as you please was installed in the fabric of a nation. It had never happened before, and it's pretty rare even in the world today. But the idea that men could choose to follow God as their conscience guided them became the bedrock. So the question becomes, is America therefore a Christian nation? And I would simply say in the beginning, ideologically it was, though they did not make it legally a Christian nation. Patrick Henry, one of the signers, <laughs> put it very simply. He says, I cannot, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet he went on to explain it was this same gospel and the experience of religious tolerance that had driven so many from Europe to the United States to escape that kind of oppressive persecution that directed them to design a system that tolerated individual differences of conscience but always within the boundaries of biblical law. Not freedom from freedom or just freedom from freedom's sake. It's freedom to do good as God has divined good. And that's a critical distinction. When people say to me, well, I just want my freedom. And I would have to ask, freedom to do what? to drive any way you want on the road, to fire a gun off wherever you feel like shooting it, to put to flame anything you want to put to flame. You want that kind of freedom? I'm afraid no, because your freedom is basically intruding upon my safety. The freedom, they thought, was freedom that was given to us to do good as the Bible defined good. That was inherent in their concepts. And so when people say, well, they weren't Christians, what we know is they're learning how to verbalize from parts of their body that were never designed to make noise, but occasionally do. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think these people, well, they, the flight attendants have a term when they have a, a, a customer on the plane that they don't like that sometimes they will, they, this is their term they use, we go by and crop dust them. I'll leave you to figure out. <laughs> these people who say these things are crop dusting. That's why Patrick Henry went on to say, for this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum prosperity, 
and freedom of worship here. It's because of that we wanted to make it a safe place for others to come. But what I tell you would have been unthinkable to the founders that we would exclude things like prayer and the Bible from our public lives as well as our private lives. Yet, after years of effort, in 1962, 1963, 1973, the Supreme Court issued three rulings that basically knocked the American legal system off its biblical foundations and enshrined what we could call as a secular relativism as our new natural, national creed. Now, it's a funny thing, people saying, well, America is a secular culture. And the truth of the matter is there's never been a secular culture in the history of the world because people invariably entrust themselves by faith to something, and that is their religious proclivity. So when a guy says, you know, uh, I follow science, what he's simply saying is I've enshrined science, it's often falsely so-called, but I've enshrined science as being my religious faith. I trust what any man in a white lab coat says to me. And you see it in the commercials all the time. You know, they have some guy there, they have a white lab coat, and he'll stiff the coat around his neck, and he'll say, I recommend that you buy this product. I don't know who this guy is. He may be me with a white coat and a stethoscope, and I'm going to recommend that you buy what I want. In fact, if that appeals to you, I've got some stuff for you later on. But it's a whole idea that we suddenly entrust ourselves to something because we always end up having to entrust ourselves to something. So what they did through those rulings is, first of all, in 1962, they removed prayer from public school and public places. Then they removed the Bible from public education. That can no longer be read because, my goodness gracious, you start reading the Bible, you have no idea what that will do to your life. And I say that personal, from my personal experience. Then in 1973, they legalized infanticide and called it health care. And as a consequence of just those three rulings, historians have basically said they ultimately changed the face of American civil society and in turn helped usher in the last half century of culture wars. Culture wars based on the definition of what is morality, what is truth, what is right and wrong. Is there such a thing as good and evil, death and life? Are there any absolutes or is morality something that's relative, that each culture creates its own set of rules arbitrarily and indistinctly to serve whatever purposes the people in power want it to serve, but it doesn't really have any absolute or complete importance to us. And part of the problem of that whole argument is if you look at the legal systems throughout history around the world, you find they all tend to include the Ten Commandments. What a coincidence. But somehow the same values keep on rising in human culture, in human legal systems. Now, it takes us a while before we start making all sorts of kooky and loony laws 
especially in our way that we do it in our country today, that the senators and the congressmen who vote on the laws 90% of the time have never even read the laws that they're voting. That's been basically uh, read by their assistants or associates or somebody on their staff, and they're told how to vote. And yet sometimes, as happens, they're asked questions about those laws that they're voting, and they have to admit they have never read them. In fact, one well-known politician said about a health care law that we need to pass it so we'll know what's in it. What? And as incredibly absurd a statement like that is, it goes unchallenged. But you see, the idea of secular relativism is simply that morals in themselves is relative, that there's, it's just all a matter of personal choices and personal opinions. But the final legal perversion came in 2015 when the court ruled that the fictitious concept of same-sex marriage was something that was legally protected. And once you drive a stake through the heart of marriage, once you say that marriage is no longer sacred, once marriage is no longer something between a man and God and a wife and God in their commitments to each other before God, but rather it's just some kind of structure between if two people say they're in love, they should be able to get married. So that even now in the state of New York, they're promoting a new law called palimony, which basically you, a man can have two or three wives, a wife can have two or three husbands, because the metric here is that we love each other, whatever that actually means when they say it. So that things that once were considered unacceptable become the new direction that we go. Overnight, we find that the unthinkable became acceptable, the abnormal became normalized, and the abominable became sacred. So that as Satan celebrate this week in Boston at SatanCon, one of their primary themes is that abortion is a sacred act for Satanists. So now we have men who pretend to be women, taking over women's sports, filling key positions in our government, stealing luggage from airports and wearing it, <laughs> making millions endorsing beer, makeup, and sports bras. I'm sorry. These are the ugliest women I've ever seen, if they're women. And I... But you have to understand what's going on here and why this is so important, why all this is happening. It isn't just happening for no reason. It's happening for a very specific reason. And our president recently expressed what it was as he carefully read the prepared statement that was given to him. He said that we have come to an inflection point in our nation's history. Now, interesting phrase, inflection point. I know you use that all the time. 
Well, if you're not a mathematician, you probably don't use it at all. What is an inflection point? Well, in mathematics, it means that on a graph, it represents a change of direction, usually downward. You know, it's kind of like you watch the economic prognostications and we follow like the value of the dollar and then suddenly you start seeing the value of the dollar and your 401k and everything else going down. That's an inflection point. That point where it begins to change direction and go downhill, that's an inflection point. And he said, we as a country are at an inflection point. I think we already feel that, don't we? <laughs> when the Chinese fly a balloon over our country and then... They demand that we apologize for shooting it down. <laughs> just go, and our leadership just says, never mind, pay no attention <laughs> to the balloon that just flew by. In business, what it means is a time of significant change, a turning point. So the question is, is this just simply a turning point or have we hit a tipping point? Which is something quite different because a tipping point means that things go off a ledge. You know, it's, it's kind of like you're, you're building out a, a, a ramp and you, to get out further on the edge of whatever structure you're working on and there's a certain point that's too far. <laughs> there's a certain point where your weight is greater than whatever resistance you have behind us, and, and it's going to tumble over. It doesn't have to be a Thelma and Louise moment where you simply floor it and drive off the cliff, and it's very obvious that they hit the tipping point really fast. It can just be little by little, incremental by increment, where you suddenly, the balance is against you, and you're over the edge, and you begin to fall. Very hard thing to stop. What is overly clear is that the current regime's policies are designed to move Americans away from the Bible and the Constitution that was inspired by the Bible towards what I refer to as a technological paganism. Technological paganism. The tool is through AI, artificial intelligence, and the problem with artificial intelligence is even though it can accomplish things far quicker and even more complex than you and I could ever do with our mind, it makes decisions based upon how it was programmed to make decisions. So my wife was looking for a summer comforter for our bed because we have this 346-pound down thing on top of our bed that, you know, cooks everything under it. <laughs> So she wanted to get something for summertime that would give us enough warmth but wasn't be so heavy and, and so warm that, that we turn into bacon on a gristle. Well, so she looked up one of the sites and now every day scores and scores of sites are sending her all these. You know, you, we've all been there. It's just even something you bought and then suddenly you've got on the side rail there all of these products that are being sold and you're being bombarded. How did they do that? Well, see, Amazon has already told us that they're getting so good with their AI that they're going to anticipate what you want to buy before you even have a chance to think about it yourself. They know your patterns so well that they'll just mail it to you and bill you. 
And now, instead of me having to acquire a product, I'm going to have to decide whether I want to keep it and have to send it back. And a lot of people saying, this is marvelous. How did it know that I needed more soy milk? But the problem is, is that is he being used today to define what is reality? So much of our news feeds and information about what's going on in the world around us is really being generated not by, uh, we, have, we call them, we don't call them journalists anymore, we call them news anchors. Uh, they're the old talking heads, you know, they're kind of a, really more like Ron Burgundy than they are by, than some kind of real journalist. They just sit there and read what's put in front of them and you realize that if you were to ask them a question for details, they wouldn't know what to say to you because they just would go back and say, well, what it says is, and that's about as authoritative as it gets. But you see, the objective of not just our nation but the nations of the world right now is to begin to program those things to such a degree that they can subjugate us, they can control us, and ultimately making us completely dependent upon them. When you begin to realize how dependent we are, actually, with our phones, with our computers, with all of our technology, technology around us, we, we rely upon it 24-7. And I am as deep into this, maybe deeper than many of you. Because as I'm sitting there and on the plane and we're getting ready to part, I walk up to the flight attendant and I said, um, I was just looking at my app and my wife's suitcase didn't get loaded on the plane. He goes, what? what? He starts looking. I show him. I said, right here, it says they offloaded it, and it's at gate six at this airport, which we're not flying to. And you know what? He got right on the phone, and with a few minutes, I get another thing saying, your bag is on the plane. I love that stuff. <laughs> Do you have any idea what it have been like to dealing with my wife when we get to where we're going, and she doesn't have her suitcase? <laughs> my gosh, that could become expensive. Dramatic. It's not like that with a guy. You know, you know how it is with guys. We just kind of go, yeah, it'll last another day. <laughs> this, is, this is critical. As I'm going to board the plane, you don't need to use your boarding pass any longer because we just already have your face. Just look at the screen. Boom. Go on the plane. We know it's you. All these conveniences, I mean, they're so attractive. Who could not like this stuff? But the problem is, increasingly, it takes control of every aspect of your life. So that when we talk about the government moving very quickly right now, many people have never even heard about the central digital banking currency, that essentially exchanging your money that you have in the bank into digital tokens, not digital dollars, digital tokens, that basically every time you go to spend the money, it tracks that money where it goes. Every time you deposit it, it re registers so you no longer will have to worry about whether or not you've paid your taxes. They will take them for you. And if they, you do something that they do not approve of, then they can simply say you can't have your money. And it's really up to them to decide what that's going to be. And increasingly, we have, as we talk, talk about the dark state, we're talking about that there's a whole infrastructure of a fourth wing of government now that is completely impervious to who's the president or who's not.
They pay no attention to the Congress because their adage is, we were here before you came, we will be here after you leave, but we run the whole thing. And so when you hear about all these scandalous things about the IRS or the FBI or the CIA or any of the 17 uh, partially intelligence agencies that do stuff around the world, you have to understand that that has become a permanent structure within our system that basically does what it thinks is the best thing to do. When we hear about wars around the world that we're engaged in and we're paying for and we're spending money on, it's all about the news feed and the information that's put out is all based upon controlling information. And you know, if you happen to be one who speaks outside the norm, you are no longer part of mainstream or legacy information. You have to become an outlier out there in some podcast. I wish none of this were true, and I wish I was just making it up. And maybe some of you don't even realize it because it's happened so incrementally. We are the frog in the kettle. The heat has been rising so slowly, but yet so incrementally that as we are simply sniffing and saying, I smell cooked frog here someplace, not even realizing it's us. It kind of feels like something I, I remember reading in the last book of the Bible, chapter 13, verse 17, I remember if I correctly. It said something along with it, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. That no one could buy or sell. Suddenly you have to be part of the system or you're not in the system whatsoever. And it's important for us to understand that when the whole, Jesus said this to, to John in, in Revelation 13, he was talking about something that definitely will happen. <laughs> you know, I would like to think I'm going to live my life in a way that I'll never have to be touched by these kind of things, but it may very well become true. But the reality is the final trajectory of human history is going to end up in this place where you cannot buy or sell. And the forces that are at work in the world today, not just in our own country, but internationally, are profoundly dedicated towards this thing. I'm going to lapse into next week's message, so I better stop at this point. It's going to be just as encouraging as this one. <laughs> but I think what we need to understand is that whenever paganism or secularism because they're really the same thing, become the cultural touchstone, the end result is always totalitarianism. That's always the end result. Paul's characterization of people in the last days plays right into this whole scenario because he basically said people would be more consumed with pleasure than they would with any idea of piety. Well, this is exactly what he said in 2 Timothy 3. He said, men will be lovers of themselves Interesting statement because what is really most important is that you love yourself. You know what? I love myself and that's my problem. <laughs> I'm mad that you don't love me as much as I love me. I thought, you got up this morning, did it even occur to your, you, did you even say to yourself, what can I do for Ken Ortiz today to make this a special day? <laughs> you were probably thinking about you, you selfish That's not our problem, friends. We love ourselves a lot 
He said, in the last days, that's, that's going to be men. It's all about self-care. What have you done recently for self-care? <laughs> you know what the Bible says? It's more blessed to give than to receive. You want to take care of yourself? Become a giver. Not somebody who's weighing around saying, hey, nobody's taking care of me. He said, secondly, they'll be lovers of money. And as I shared last week, the number one metric that's going up in terms of our culture is that people believe that money is the key to happiness. They love money. And he adds to it, they love pleasure rather than being lovers of God. They, they'll seek pleasure even if it comes between what they know to be right and true in God because he said they'll have a form of godliness, but denying its power. And it's interesting, this word denying, I always look at the word power, which is dunamis, the, the power to change and affect things. But it's this word denying in the original means they won't accept it. They'll reject it. They'll refuse what is being offered to them. In other words, they will have the power of God to save and transform a life will be offered to them, and they will reject it and refuse it and say, I don't want it, and I don't need it. And if you read the book of Revelation, what you find is that is so true. In chapter 16, it talks about the final plagues coming upon the earth. The last three plagues, you know what it says each time over and over again? And they would not repent. And they would not repent. Horrific things happening, and they would not repent. And I'm reading this and thinking, man, if I was in this world, my body was covered with boils. The heat is overwhelming. Everything is going wrong and falling apart. I'm going to fall on my face and say, God, forgive me and have mercy upon my soul. And he said, no, they won't. They'll curse God, it says. They'll curse God. The danger is they become like the ancient Israelites, and maybe we have too, where they abandoned the God who made them, rejected the Savior, deserted the rock who fathered us, that we've forgotten that God who gave us birth and life, we have angered him with our detestable idols. We have sacrificed to demons. False gods your father did not fear. Tipping coins, though, important to note this, can tip forward or they can tip backwards. That it can tip, in our case, towards paganism, or it can actually tip back to God and the Bible. The question is, as John Stone Street put it in a recent blog that he writes, it's one of my favorite, the Colson Center's Breakpoint, one of my favorite blog sites, I recommend it to anybody. But he asked this question, he says, are we in a Wilberforce moment where our efforts will be rewarded by Christ to bring about restoration, or a Bonhoeffer moment where our faithful witness and lives do not heal, but our testimonies stand amidst the collapse. If you're not familiar with those two men, you, you realize Wilberforce was the parliamentarian who spent 20 years lobbying Congress to get, or lobbying Parliament to get slavery outlawed in the British Empire. And the law passed finally as he was dying on his deathbed. So he says, are we, gonna be, are we in a Wilberforce moment where we can be as forceful and outspoken and aggressive and committed to that which is good and true and right? 
so that we actually, in the end, see a change where the culture begins to swing back to what is right and true and good, or a Dietrich Bonhoeffer moment. Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Nazis because he was resisting them as a pastor, as a preacher, he's speaking out against him, and he spent two years in concentration camps, and finally they let him out on the very day that that the Nazis surrendered to the Allied forces. They marched him out, put a piano wire around his neck from a hook, and they let him hang there as he suffocated over the next 30 minutes. And the doctor who watched it said, I've never seen a man in my life who went so willingly to death and died with such peace, calm, and resolve to the will of God for him. That becomes a choice. Can we experience the victory, or can we be the people who stand firm? I, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that those are really the choices that come when we decide that we're going to follow God and pursue his will. The psalmist reminds us, he says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? See, often we read that passage and then we don't attach it to the rest of the passage. He answers the very question he asks. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He goes on to tell us. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. God hasn't lost control of the situation. He observes the Son of Man. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And upright men will see his face. We may not be able to control the outcomes, but we do have a choice on how we react and respond to the world around us. And it becomes very thematic. I think we hear it over and over again. I repeat it constantly, but I don't think I ever tire of reading it or hearing it. When he said in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he says, if, and this is like a conditional promise. We call them conditional promises because they have an if and a then. If you do this, then I, this is what I, how I will respond. This is God's promise. But he says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the solution. It's not going to come through politics. It's not going to come through ballot boxes. And it's not going to come through, and I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad. I don't want to put a damper on that. But ultimately, change comes for good when God's people humble themselves and pray. We confess our sins and that becomes a powerful revelatory process when God begins to 
you know, I, I realized it myself some years ago that I've always been against abortion, but there was something that shifted in my realization of what that really, really entailed, and it became haunting. And I had to begin by saying, God, forgive me for not being burdened more and upset more and concerned more and recognize the tragedy of this genocide. That's what happens when you begin to seek his face and you begin to draw near to him. God begins to heighten an awareness of things in your life that you may not have really concerned yourself. Too many of us are like Lot living in Sodom and we're grieved, Peter says, by the wicked conversation of the culture. This is so terrible. And yet Lot never said squat. He never raised his voice. He never said, wait a minute, this is wrong. <laughs> In fact, when the men come to the door of his house and they want to assault the angels, what does he do? Here, take my daughters instead. Talking about being a frog in the kettle. Because he had never stood up. He had never spoken out. He had never confronted he knew enough about God to hate the wickedness that he saw all around him. But he was not courageous enough to say anything. And what's most, most telling, it said that when he meets the two angels that come, he was sitting in the gate of the city. Only the leaders of the community were allowed to sit in the gates of the city. That's like city hall in the ancient world. So here was a man who had gained prominence within Sodom because he was probably a man of honesty, integrity. But did he ever challenge the rabid immorality that was around him? Did he ever say, that's not right? When we humble ourselves and admit, God, I, I'm not passionate about things that you're passionate about, when we begin to pray that God would change his hearts, and we begin to seek to see his face, because he says upright men will see his face in Psalm 11, we seek to seek his and see his face, and when we do, as soon as we see his face, what happens is we turn from our wicked ways, we see his face and realize whatever it is that I've been attracted to <laughs> is no longer attractive. When I've seen, as the psalmist described, the beauty of his holiness, the false beauties of this world begin to pale, become disinteresting. That's when two things are going to happen. He says, you're going to hear from heaven. God is going to, you're going to, God's going to begin to speak into your life. You are going to become a conduit for the for the word of God. He is going to forgive you of your sins. And then he says, after that, I'll heal your land. So quite honestly, I, my wife and I pray every single day for the healing of our nation. And I've been able to get past the point of looking at the personalities that we see publicly representing a lot of these false values and realizing they're merely puppets. They're merely what Lenin called the useful idiots that are fulfilling the designs and the plans of people that we may not ever know their names or faces, but they're the real power behind the throne. 
And they have a very definite agenda, and it is to make themselves ever more powerful and make you ever more obedient, dependent, subservient, and obligated to them to the point where they reach the ultimate goal of Satan is that you can't even buy food or sell something without their permission. I hear people saying, well, that's why I've got all this gold and silver. What struck me about gold and silver, and I don't have anything against gold and silver. If you've got a bunch and you don't want it, then just you know, I'll give you my address. But, but when James says your gold and your silver is corrupted, <laughs> gold and silver don't corrupt. What do you mean it's corrupted? He's essentially saying when it becomes valueless. You see, once there's an international economic system that's digitally controlled, there, there's no value other than a bit, another commodity that you can use to make or sell or do things, but it will no longer be a defining characteristic. But you see, even if you want to trade your gold and silver for food, you're like a drug dealer. You're committing a crime. You're breaking the law. And they will find you. I know, you're going to hide off the grid. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> uh, they'll find your bio signal someplace. Well, anyway, why do I say all this stuff? To ruin a beautiful day. That's why. <laughs> I told somebody that I feel it's my responsibility to inform people so that they can see their life more clearly in the light of eternity and not in, in the shadows of time. We have no continuing city here. Our ultimate goal is to be in the presence of the Lord, to be home with the Lord. And some of us are, are closer to going home than others are. And the more <laughs> you realize that, the more it becomes important to you to make sure that you are making decisions and doing things that are going to withstand the changes of the world and are going to be eternal and not just temporary. It means that as Christians, we need to get very serious about being Christians. That we're not part-timing it. But that we're committed. <laughs>